Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 32 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 12 of the Michigan Constitution. Over the next two podcasts, we're going to talk about the concept of habeas corpus, a Latin term for that you have the body, which dates back to the year 1215 and is a concept contained within the Magna Carta. The writ of habeas corpus is the legal method for challenging the legality of a person's confinement. We're going to talk about its history in England, how it got to the United States, then got put into the Michigan Constitution, and more importantly, what it means to have that constitutional protection. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Article 1, Section 12. Habeas Corpus. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, in case of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. The writ of habeas corpus is used to bring a criminal defendant in front of a judge to determine if the person's detention is lawful or not. At the very heart of habeas corpus is the idea that a person who is sitting in a jail cell has the constitutional right to go before a judge, force the government to defend why the person is incarcerated, and for a judge to determine if, indeed, the law necessitates the person being held against his will. This idea that, quote-unquote, no man shall be arrested or imprisoned except by the lawful judgment of his peers and by the law of the land, unquote, was written into the Magna Carta and signed by King John. Lest you think that this is some benevolent leader who cared for the personal liberties of his subjects, let me correct that belief. To the contrary. What King John found was that his subjects were being restrained by the likes of simple constables and other authorities for various reasons. As such, King John believed it was the king himself who had a divine right to incarcerate his people. The notion of habeas corpus was instituted by the king to force the lower person, so, you know, essentially all those people who weren't king, 
to account for all of the king's subjects and why they had restrained those subjects, when really it was the divine role of the king to have that authority to restrain his subjects. Okay, so not the most magnanimous reason to implement habeas corpus, but a protection from one person is better than no protections at all, I suppose. So we're chugging along here from 1215 to the founding of our country. As subjects of the crown, prior to the revolution, of course, we know and understand the protection that is habeas corpus. Therefore, it should not come as a surprise that we would word that protection into the first 10 amendments of our newly created federal constitution. As a matter of importance, our first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, a fellow by the name of John Marshall, expressly discussed the importance of habeas corpus when writing in an 1830 Supreme Court opinion. The great object of the writ of habeas corpus is the liberation of those who may be imprisoned without sufficient cause. Habeas corpus is the fundamental instrument for safeguarding individual freedom against arbitrary and lawless state action and must be administered with the initiative and flexibility essential to ensure that miscarriages of justice within its reach are surfaced and corrected. Michigan, both as a territory and then as a state, has also enjoyed the protections from which this habeas corpus idea stems. It was worked into the 1787 Northwest Ordinance when we were merely a territory and then it was also worked into our first state constitution of 1833. Our present-day language has not been changed since the 1908 constitution, essentially meaning the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, in case of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it, is currently 113 years old. Now, important to note, the writ is not to determine the guilt or innocence of a defendant, but only to test the legality of the current incarceration. This will act as an instrument for safeguarding a person's freedom against arbitrary, lawless, governmental actions, essentially. It's really just a procedural device by which restraints imposed by the government are going to be subjected to judicial scrutiny. Think of a writ of habeas corpus as an inquiry into the reasons or grounds for a restraint in detention. The writ will act as a safeguard against imprisonment of people held in violation of the law by ordering the police and prosecutors to provide valid reasons for this detention. And remember, being in jail is, is a detention. So the writ of habeas corpus concept is designed to obtain relief from an unlawful imprisonment by ordering a release of that person unless there is sufficient legal grounds to hold that person in jail. In 2021, where we most normally see the notion of habeas corpus being used is for bail consideration, extradition processes, and when a defendant is being held in jail while still awaiting a trial. Long swaths of time for a criminal defendant to be held in jail awaiting trial is a major factor for something called a habeas petition. As an attorney who frequently represented criminal defense clients, particularly low-income criminal defendants, it was not uncommon to use a habeas petition to ask a judge to grant a personal recognizance bond for a criminal defendant. Sidebar. 
a personal recognizance or more commonly referred to as a PR bond. Personal recognizance is abbreviated down to PR bond. This means that the defendant is released from jail without being required to post any money for his or her bond. The defendant is essentially released on the basis of his or her promise to appear at their next court date. Whether a judge is inclined to give a criminal defendant a PR bond is based on many factors, least of which is whether the defendant has ever skipped out on their bond or maybe not come back to court when they're supposed to be at court or whether the person lives in the community. If a defendant is notorious for not coming back to court on her scheduled court date or if she lives in a different state, those kind of factors play into whether a judge will issue a personal recognizance bond. So if I were representing a criminal defendant who was facing a misdemeanor charge and or never had a criminal conviction prior to this charge, maybe if the defendant wasn't released on his or her own recognizance, it was not uncommon for me to file a habeas petition and ask a judge to consider either a PR bond or at least some sort of minimal bond. And it's not uncommon for judges to grant these types of requests. Now, again, to be clear, we're talking about low-level crimes which result in little, if any, jail time. Therefore, when I would have a criminal defendant sitting in jail for, say, 30-plus days, a judge understands that that's probably about all the jail time the defendant would face even if found guilty, or if they were to plead guilty. Now, to be sure, a misdemeanor and potentially a low-level felony is far, far different than a person in jail for, say, murder, rape, or kidnapping. But even criminal defendants facing those charges do enjoy the privilege of a speedy trial, bail, and other aspects of a writ of habeas corpus. Hopefully I'm starting to highlight these real-life examples of how habeas corpus works, but let's get into some actual habeas corpus cases. And our first one is People v. Den Ewell, which was a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1948. And that's our first case to tackle the habeas corpus concept, and it's from this 1948 time. Now, to be clear, this provision of habeas corpus has been in all previous Michigan constitutions. But when the newest 1963 Michigan constitution was adopted, the habeas corpus provision was moved from Article 2 into Article 1 to help accentuate the importance of this basic constitutional right. So even though right now we're about to talk about a pre-1963 Michigan constitutional case, I think it's a really strong starting point. And I'm going to tell you right up front that the Michigan Supreme Court found the delay to the defendant's right to trial was indeed a violation of our Article 1, Section 12 habeas corpus protection. That's because of the seven delays which occurred during an 18-month timeline. And here's what's going on. On July 20th, 1946, warrants for the arrest of numerous defendants were issued by a judge, charging them all with conspiracy to obstruct legislation and offering bribes to members of the Michigan legislature. Now, everything was moving along nicely from September 10th through September 25th. During that time, there were examinations being held with assorted witnesses offering their testimony to help provide the probable cause existed to bind the trial over to a circuit court for protection. But on September 26th, the prosecution moved for a continuance because of the inability to get a fellow by the last name of Jimenez to testify as a witness. 
Now, this fellow, Mr. Jimenez, is a crucial witness, apparently, for the prosecutor and will play a major factor in the delay of this case. Because Jimenez was absent from the state of Michigan at the time of the preliminary examination, the court was willing to adjourn the hearing until October 9th. I'm going to just give you the timeline at this point because the court ultimately grants six more continuations to the prosecution because they can't get Mr. Jimenez to come to court. Before the October 9th hearing date, the court extended the delay out to October 16th. Then on October 16th, the court adjourned the hearing out to January 6th of 1947. But ultimately, that hearing got pushed out to April 28th of 1947. Which, of course, then got pushed out to June 30th, and then again pushed out to October 9th of 1947. So now we're talking a full calendar year. Now, I should make clear, at each of these dates that I've been mentioning, the defendant's attorney filed motion after motion to get the case dismissed for lack of action being taken on this case. And it was at the October 9th hearing, over strenuous protests by the defense attorney, and notwithstanding the right to a speedy trial, and despite their demands for an open court that the preliminary examination be brought to a conclusion or be dismissed, alas, the court again adjourned the examination to November 13, 1947. And remember, the warrants for the defense, uh, defendant's arrests, those were all going back to July 20, 1946. So a warrant issued July 20, 1946, still getting a delay out through November 13, 1947. At the November 13, 1947 hearing, witness Jimenez continued to refuse to testify in court out of fear he might incriminate himself. But as you can guess, the court both rejected defendant's motion to dismiss the case and adjourned the hearing until March 24, 1948. Fortunately for the defendant, the Michigan Supreme Court issued the ruling I'm talking about now on April 5, 1948. And here's what the court had to determine. Whether the refusal of this Hamens fellow to testify and the inability of the prosecution to obtain his testimony, if it constitutes good cause for a further adjournment after seven previous adjournments and more than 18 months. That's, that's the question. Is there good cause for why we keep getting these adjournments, seven of them to be exact, over 18 months? Now, the Michigan Supreme Court begins by reviewing the history of the concept of the right to a speedy trial. Our Supremes go back to the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679 out of England. This law provided that every person committed for treason or felony, if not indicted and tried within a specified amount of time, should be discharged from his imprisonment for whatever the alleged offense was. Now, the Michigan Supreme Court points out that this Habeas Corpus Act created no new set of rights, but afforded a better meaning of enforcing these rights already established by the common law. And the principles of the Habeas Corpus Act have become a part of our common law here in America. Our highest court in the land said it is thus proper to look to the common law for some indication of the meaning of the phrase speedy trial. In view of this Habeas Corpus constitutional provision, it becomes necessary to inquire what a speedy trial means. We believe it means such reasonable time under all the relevant circumstances as will give the people an opportunity to present its case in court. 
A speedy trial does not mean that the respondent is entitled to have his trial commence immediately after being bound over to the trial court. What would be a reasonable time in one case would perhaps be unreasonable in another. The question might be affected by the gravity of the offense, the number of witnesses involved, and many other circumstances. Owing to this, much must be necessarily left to the discretion of the trial court. So our Supreme Court starts right off the bat by saying that a lapse in time is not the only factor to be considered, but is one of the circumstances which can be taken into account when looking to determine if a speedy trial has been violated as part of our Article 1, Section 12 provision. But they immediately follow up by stating the absence of a material witness like Mr. Jimenez is good cause for allowing the continuance for a reasonable period of time. A court can allow for this, particularly where it appears probable that the witness will be produced by the prosecution and will testify. Of course, this is the biggest problem for the prosecution in our case here. They can't get Mr. Jimenez to show up to court. And when he does show up, he's unwilling to testify against the defendants. So now the prosecutor has two strikes against him. Number one, a lengthy time delay. And secondly, an unaccommodating key witness. The court points out one of the circumstances which will constitute good cause for a delay to a speedy trial is when there are appeals based on decisions made by the trial court. We know all too well both sides appeal judges' decisions throughout every trial process. If sides are appealing decisions to a higher court, that is naturally going to delay in getting to an actual trial. But the Michigan Supreme Court said delays by the operation of rules and regulations is not what is meant by a speedy trial. And I understand exactly what the Michigan Supremes are getting at when they tell us this. We want to ensure every decision made at the trial court level is correct and protects both the prosecution and the defendant. So if a decision made regarding evidence admitted or a witness testimony being offered, if that needs to be double-checked, so to speak, at, a, at an appellate level, that's all part of the legal process. That is not a delay for a trial. And to the contrary, those appeals are to ensure what is going to happen at trial is legally sound, and the rights are protected for both sides of the criminal case. Now, one wrinkle in this case which the court must address is the fact that our defendant here has been out on bail all this time. So it's not like he's been sitting in jail for the last 18 months awaiting his case to be tried. He's been out on bail all along, so the Supremes have to address whether a right to speedy trial is at issue when the person is not sitting in jail awaiting a trial. After all, if you're sleeping in your own bed at night, going to work, family birthday parties, perhaps even taking vacations within the state of Michigan, is there harm if your case is taking 18 plus months before going to trial? Yes, said the Michigan Supreme Court. They said Michigan residents out on bail do not lose their constitutional right to a speedy trial. After all, think about what the right to habeas corpus is. It's a protection to the person. This is a protection against both the hardships of imprisonment, but also against the harassment of being subject to accusations. Being accused of a crime, the court notes, has a harmful effect on the defendant's reputation and their business affairs. Simply put, a judge can look to whether the person is in or out of jail when deciding if there is good cause to adjourn a hearing 
But being out on bond doesn't automatically mean there is good cause to adjourn. So going back to our case at hand, the Michigan justices note there has been no showing by the prosecutor that witness Hemen's refusal to testify was because of the defendant, or maybe said another way, the defendant in this case isn't the reason why the prosecutor star witness won't testify. Therefore, our court said something more must be shown to justify such a long delay, despite the materiality of Mr. Hemen's testimony. The court believes absence of a key witness is not good cause to justify delays. More so, just saying you can get the key witness to show up is not good enough. There must also be shown the probability that the witness will actually testify. And if you remember from earlier, that has not been the case here. Either Mr. Jimenez wouldn't show up to court to testify, or when he was physically brought in to testify, he refused to speak. Now, the prosecution has a couple of arguments the court just flat out rejects. The prosecution first argues that each adjournment itself was inconsequential. They argue that it's not like there was a hearing on one day and then nothing happened for the next 18 months. To the contrary, the prosecution points out there's usually a month or two between these adjourned hearings. And the prosecution points out at those hearings, before they're adjourned to the next date, the trial court judge has been hearing defendant's motion to dismiss. So there were legitimate legal activities occurring every few months, or at least that's what the prosecution was arguing. But no dice, said the court. They found that it's the totality of the seven adjourned hearings where no Mr. Hemenz was being brought forth. That was the problem. The Michigan Supreme Court said you need to look at the totality of the delays together, not individually. Next, the prosecution argued there's been no harm to the defendant since he's out on bail and living his life over these past 18 months. But going back to the harm to reputation and business interests, well, the Supremes held there's damage to a defendant's mental well-being. That there's harassment being felt having this delay after delay while awaiting your trial. And even if the defendant didn't suffer mental or reputational damage, the court highlights injury is presumed when a person's constitutional rights are invaded. The defendant doesn't have to suffer actual literal harm due to a delay. The defendant is, by and of itself, harmed when there is an infringement against an individual's constitutional rights like what Article 1, Section 12 seeks to protect against. Harming a protection afforded by a person vis-a-vis -vis the constitutional provision is harm to that person. And for those reasons, the Michigan Supreme Court told the trial judge to either proceed with or conclude the preliminary examination within 60 days of their April 5th decision. If the judge doesn't need to hear any more witness testimony, he certainly could then bind the defendant over to circuit court for a trial or the judge could dismiss the charges against the defendant and close out the case. So I think we're going to close out here for today. We're about 22 minutes into it. I've got another one that would, is going to be about the same amount of time uh, and so as not to overwhelm the listener. Uh, I'm just going to break this 
this topic into two podcasts. So this is it for episode 32 of the Mission Constitution podcast. We'll come back next time, and I've got uh, one more that should be about the same amount of time, and we're going to fully cover the rest of the information that I think you're going to want to know about this particular Mission Constitutional Protection. Of course, you can always reach me. I am online at TonySnyder.com, or I'm on Twitter at TonySnyder, and we'll talk next time. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of Thanks for listening.